Well, we're in this series on um, the undiluted Christ. I'm moving here. It's kind of funny because remember last week we collected some candy for the Marines, and I mentioned that the Marine children loved little Snickers. So there's a Snicker bar up here. <laughs> you never know. And also, I was just thinking, boy, Polly, 40 years in the choir, that's, it must be better than 40 years in the wilderness. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but thank you. Thank you for your service. As uh, and I like that they let me come sing with them, too, because it's a lot of fun just to get to sing. Well, August 15, 1981 might be the most important day in my life, or the greatest days, if not one of the, certainly one of the greatest, because Cindy and I got married that day. And I gave myself to her with words and hugs and kisses and flowers and pictures and music and cake and promises and signed documents and a, a lot of friends. And she gave herself to me with words and hugs and kisses and flowers and pictures and music and cake and promises and signed documents. And then uh, we headed off on our honeymoon, which is four and a half months long. And we went 15,000 miles and drove to 38 states and 28 national parks and monuments. And that's when we really did get to know each other and realize just exactly what we had said, I do to do. And um, nothing was the same after that. You know, you have to go from thinking like an I to thinking like a we. And uh, you know, first you're alone, and then now you're together, always together. And uh, so um, getting married meant other changes. You know, I can remember thinking, I said I do to that, to that, to that, to that, to that, to that. And some of you have had the same experience. And, you know, you have to synchronize your diets and your schedules and your attire and your bedtime. And it also meant that we stopped dating other people now that we're married. And, uh, you know, in a way, it was a conversion experience. I was no longer the same. The old was gone. The new has come. And that's the big idea that we're looking at from Colossians chapter 3 today, that your conversion to Jesus Christ changed everything. You died to yourself to come alive in Jesus Christ. So be like Christ. Put Christ at the center. Keep him at the center of your life. So what does it mean to have Christ at the center of your life? Well, we're looking in Colossians chapter 3, and uh, verse 1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, Paul, who's writing this, is sitting in prison, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting for an opportunity to have a trial before Caesar, and so that he, uh, he sees it as a great opportunity to share the love of Jesus Christ with the most powerful person in the world, but they're not in any hurry. And so while he's in prison, he's getting reports of other churches, and he hears of this little church that has been getting off track. Who knows? Maybe they've been having race riots or economy problems or police abuse or an election or something that's been going on that's caused them to somehow uh, get away from keeping their eyes on Christ and getting uh, the, the world uh, coming into the church. And so he's written this little letter to them to help them once again focus on Jesus because Jesus is the greatest. He's number one of all time. And so we've been looking at the undiluted Jesus, that he's the, the number one both for the past. He has the ability to forgive sin. And in the present, he has the power to change your character and behavior and have you live a life of significance. And in the future, because he's going to give you heaven to spend eternity with him forever. So now Paul gets practical. He does this in several of his books, where the first half is theological, and, and then, uh, like, uh, Romans is that way, and then he gets practical. said, so based on that, here's how you should live. And that's the section that we're headed into today. Verse 1, if then, 
or really could be translated since then. The NIV translates it, therefore, since you have, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You have been raised with Christ from the dead. You died. You died to yourself. Now, I've noticed about dead people, they stop breathing. Their, their heart stops. They stop eating. They stop sleeping. They stop getting dressed. They stop having conversations. They stop caring. They stop collecting. They stop a lot of what they, once they're dead, they're, they don't do what they did when they were alive. He says, you have died to yourself so that Christ could come alive in you. You're not single anymore. You belong to Christ. And you still live here on earth, but your focus is on Christ, who's seated at the right hand of God. Which that phrase, he's seated at the right hand of God, shows the proper place of Jesus. He's God. He's God's right-hand man. It's a place of honor. It's a place of showing Christ divine and supreme authority. He's the undiluted Christ. He's the pure and powerful one, and he's all you need. So we believers need to give our full attention to this inward experience of our relationship with God himself who has come alive in our hearts. And we also live in these outward relationships in the world with all the other earthlings who live around us. And the only way to escape from sin and from the chaos around us is to stay close to Jesus Christ. Rather than thinking like the world we live in and doing what the world does, we are to think about Christ. We are to be like Christ. We are to respond like Christ. If you have been raised with Christ, and you have, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ is the power behind our whole life from the moment we invite him to come into our heart. We're never the same again. He gives us the power to resist the attitudes and the appetites of the world and to seek heavenly things, to set our hearts and our minds on things above. The verse in this verse, not to give you a language lesson, but it's in the present tense, which suggests continuing action. So he's saying, keep on seeking, keep on seeking. You're never done. Seeking the things that are above. Chase it. It's a new way of thinking, and it's not our first language. It's not our mother tongue, and it will always be a struggle. It doesn't come naturally. Well, see, in our new life, we're not alone anymore. You're no longer an I. You're a we. Christ is alive in you. You're married. You're in a new and committed relationship. So look what Paul says is our new focus. Verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things out of the earth. Now, that sounds a lot like verse 1, doesn't it? Set your heart on things above, set your mind on things above. It's like the Siamese twins. They can't be separated from one another. So one is our emotion, one is our thinking. Paul is saying think in this verse. Think Christ. Think about Christ. Think like Christ. Think a whole new way. Not like the world anymore. Not like your natural solo self. Think Christ. Think heaven. And that's the struggle, because we think heaven, but we live here. And we deal with all the same stuff every other living person does. We deal with people and problems. We deal with taxes and time pressures. We deal with electing a new president, and we don't like our choices. And, and we deal with family and fatigue. And, and as believers, we're conscious that we're here and now, but it's not all that matters, because we're going to see Jesus face to face someday. 
We will spend forever in his presence in heaven. The things of this earth that it says, not on the earthly things. All the earthly things are not evil, but some of them are. Paul is probably including things in this like jobs or the pursuit of wealth or pride or getting recognition or wielding power or the pursuit of pleasure and so on. All the things that the world does that we still do, but we're no longer our focus because we've given our hearts to Jesus Christ. See, your heart is your center. And when you give Christ your heart, you are putting Christ at the center of your life. You are not your own anymore. You belong to Christ. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You died to yourself. Your life is hidden in Christ, but it will not remain hidden forever. See, we have this connection with Christ that's not fully seen, certainly not understood by the world. And we live here now, and we live in an invisible spiritual realm. But someday it will all be revealed when we see Jesus face to face. And when we give an account for our life, that is the moment that we want to have the greatest joy. That is the moment that we need to keep in focus now. That's the moment we live for. Set your mind on things above. For you died. When Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. This phrase, when Christ appears, appears is a reference to the return of Jesus to this earth. If you were to read at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus has finished his ministry and they had crucified him. He came back from the dead. He spent about 40 days just showing up in meetings like this one where suddenly he would just appear. Even if they had the doors locked, he would just be in among them and he would be sharing with them. And after 40 days, he gathered them all together and he said, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they were, and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Be my witnesses where you live and, and all around you in your community and everywhere in the world. And we're still trying to do that to this day. And then he said, and I will be with you. And suddenly he just began to go up like a helium balloon and up behind a cloud. And then there were two angels standing there next to him saying, why are you guys all staring there up into the sky? The same Jesus, the same way he left, he's going to return. Now, if you'd had that experience, and they didn't tell you when, but they said, be urgent about the work of the Lord. You would spend a lot of time looking up, wouldn't you? Going, is today the day? Is he coming today? Is it going to, am I, I going to get to see him? Is he's, he's just this little speck and then all of a sudden he's here? Where's Jesus? When is he arriving? When's he going to be here? And it didn't seem important to Jesus to let them know that 2,000 years or more would go by because he wanted them in a state of urgency, a state of readiness, a state of, uh, of, of if today is the day that the Lord calls you home, then I'm ready. Naiho have this dream inside, I bet some of you do as well, that I'm going to be about 100 years old and in good health with my children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren when Jesus calls me home or when, when Jesus returns and we see him come in the clouds and I won't have to die, you know, and, and I'll just be with the Lord because we have seen him. Don't, don't you hope that same thing? Yeah. And Christians have hoped that for 2,000 years. 
where most of them have gone ahead and died, and then to be absent from the body is to be present in, before the Lord. So Paul had this same thing going on, and you can see it in his writings because he wrote 13 letters that are all books in the Bible now. And in the first one he wrote, in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, he talks about this subject. And he said, I don't want you to be concerned about those who've died or grieve like the rest of the world that has no hope. Because we believe that Jesus is going to come back, the trumpet of the Lord is going to sound, the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and then we who are alive are going to be caught up to in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Therefore, comfort each other with these words. Because those people had said, you know what, Jesus is coming back so soon, it's got to be now. So let's, why pay our mortgages? Why work our jobs? Why buy lunch? Let's just get together and we'll pray and Jesus will be here. Well, in 2 Thessalonians, it comes a little later, and he realizes it's not going to happen just like that. And he says to him in in 2 Thessalonians, guys, you need to be responsible citizens. It's going to take a little longer than you think. In 1 and 2 Timothy, he says, in the last days, people will fall away from following following Christ. In other words, this is going to be longer. We don't know, but you still have to be in this state of readiness that if today is the day. And then you get to Philippians chapter 1. Paul is an old man and he's in prison and he says, I can hardly wait to die and go see Jesus, which is far better. I really think he finishes, if you keep tracing his thought on this, of when is the Lord going to return? Are we separated from the love of Christ? Did Jesus keep his promise? Is he really coming back the way he said? In Romans 8, he ends by saying, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. We don't know. We just need to live in a state of readiness. If he wanted us to know the date, he could tell us. Then you could plan, but you can't. So you just have to be ready today to have done today what you want to do for the Lord. You don't know how long you have, so use every moment for him. How differently that is from how the world thinks. Here the world is ravenously chasing its pursuits of power and pleasure. And and we live here now among them. And we're trying to live as good citizens and to make the world a better place. And yet we do so many of the same activities of the people of the world. Of jobs and shopping and fun and taking care of ourselves and our families. But we are looking for the return of Christ. Where we're going to spend eternity with Jesus. And we're aware that it could be today that all of a sudden we are called to account. And we are living this life with that one in focus. So our focus is completely different from the world around us, even though many of our conversations and our activities overlap. And the struggle that we have is that we've died to ourselves. We've died to sin. We've come to Christ and made lifelong promises to Jesus. But we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with things that dead people aren't supposed to struggle with. And that's the conundrum. That's our inner wrestling match. Would it give you any relief to know that the Apostle Paul still struggled with the same kind of thing? He wrote about it in Romans chapter 7. Starting verse 15, he said, I don't understand my own actions. I do what I do not want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want, I agree with the law that it's good. The law is the standard that shows me where I'm missing the boat. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin who dwells in me. So I find this law that when I do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Can you relate? The struggle that he's having of, I love Jesus. He's in my heart. I want him number one. I still struggle. I mean, Paul is pretty candid and pretty honest right here. And he's speaking for all of us. And so he's writing this little letter now to the Colossian church that is dabbling with sin. And he gives them the prescription to cure what ails them. He says, you died to yourself. You have a new life in Christ. You have a new focus. Live your life now with what really matters in light of heaven and light of eternity. So with a new life and a new focus, here's your new practice. Look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. Put them to death. That's pretty strong language. He says, don't pet it, don't play with it, don't feed it, kill it. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, The Great Divorce. Now, when my big kids that are all grown and gone were at home, we had a daughter who was thinking very lofty thoughts and went through the Tory Honors Program at Biola. And at the same time, we had boys that were playing basketball. So at dinner, we would be talking about the meaning of life when one person would talk, and when the others, it would be how to get the ball down to the low post where you could slam it into the basket, okay? And so those conversations would get all mixed with each other. And so on one hand, it was really important how you handled the ball, and the other point of view was how jejun that you'd even waste time talking about such things. And so finally, I said to the boys, tell you what, let's do. Let's read one of Arya's books. And the one we read was C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, which is talking about people dying and going to heaven or to hell. And uh, so uh, I said, we will read the book with the view that will underline certain phrases that we can just kind of pepper into the conversation at dinner and to see if we can't, you know, get her on the hook to, to, to bite on the topics that sounds like we know something about when we've really only read a few pages. And uh, so we, we tried this experiment. It was a lot of fun. But in the, we read The Great Divorce. This man is on his way to heaven, but he's got a pet lizard on his shoulder that doesn't want to let go of him. He knows he's not going to heaven with a pet lizard, and this lizard won't let go. It's chained to him. And an angel comes up and says, I can kill it for you if you want me to. I can kill it for you if you want me to. Now, your favorite bad habit, if the Lord said, I can kill it for you if you want me to, would you want him to? Or do you say, well, would you say like St. Augustine said, well, Lord, deliver me from lust, but not yet. <laughs> I can kill it if you want me to. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly. And he has this list of sin, almost all of which seem to have a sexual connotation. And, I mean, it was a human struggle back then, and it's a human struggle to this day. And, and he concludes that it's really idolatry. He, Paul basically is saying that with you, when you think those thought patterns, when you ag- engage in those activities, when those passions control your thoughts and your emotions and your actions, when you've made them your God, when you're worshiping the flesh rather than having Christ be supreme... Because those things will always want to crawl up onto the throne of our life and put themselves in charge in the place that should 
only be reserved for Christ. Idolatry, you see, idol worship happens when we place our own self or our own self-interest or our own passions or anything else in our heart when we put it in the place that rightfully belongs to Christ. Paul says, kill it. Kill it for the sake of Christ. Kill it so that you can avoid the wrath of God. Kill it because you're not who you were. You're married now. You've made promises. You've committed yourself to keep living in the new life. You have to kill the old one so that it doesn't capture you once again. On April 26, 2003, Aaron Ralston was 27 years old. He was a mountaineer, an outdoorsman, and he set out on a, out on a day of adventure. He didn't tell anybody. He wasn't going to be gone all that long. He lived in Moab, Utah, and he went out to do some rock climbing. Actually, it's called bouldering when you don't bother to use any equipment because you're not going to slip, you're not going to fall. Okay, so he's out there bouldering on these big rocks all by himself. He has a little water bottle, a light jacket, and he happened to slip, and the boulder got dislodged. And when it was done, he had fallen into a, a crevasse, and a, a boulder that he thought weighed about 800 pounds came down and smacked right onto his wrist and pinned his hand against the wall. Some of you might seen, have seen the movie on this. Um, it is named 127 Hours, I think. He uh, began to yell. There was nobody within earshot, nobody who could get any help. And he hadn't expected to be out there one night, but he survived the first night, then the second, then the third, then the fourth, and then the fifth. After five nights, he realized, I've run out of water, I have no hope, nobody's come by, and I'm going to die. Nobody even knows where I am or to begin looking for me. And if I'm going to get loose, I have to cut off my own hand. And he did to save his life. He cut off his own hand. It was extreme. It was painful. It was bloody. It was messy. And it was absolutely necessary or he would have died. Paul says, kill it. Your old nature, kill it. For the sake of Christ. And the, you know, we, we believe certain things about sin as Christians. We believe, you know, I can handle it at least a little bit. It won't get out of control. It's not a big deal if nobody knows. It's just a little bit of sin. I'll just keep it over here in this one little corner of my room, of, of my life, or one little room of my life. Well, I know, uh, we have cat lovers here. If cats, I don't know a whole lot about cats, but I've noticed if they fall in the water, the cat has one thing in mind. What is it? Get out! Get out! Christian, if you fall into sin, there should be one thing on your mind. Get out! Get out! How can we who are dead to sin continue to live in it? But we do. We think, oh, I can just manage it a little bit. Or we think, oh, no, no, I'm perfect. I'm so past that. God, thank me for being so humble and so honest. Or we think, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. God forgives all the sins, so... This one even shows up in Romans. So people said, well, I should just sin more because God's grace covers it. So the more I sin, the more grace he extends. Paul said, horror at the thought. May it never be. You know, or some people think, well, I've reached a state of sinless perfection. The Apostle Paul didn't seem to have reached a state of sinless perfection in Romans 7, had he? And he was a mature Christian who'd been starting churches, uh, discipling people, uh, writing letters that are in the Bible. He did, never reached a state where he was sinless. He struggled with it his whole life. I'm guessing that for most of us, we will struggle with sin until we see Jesus face to face. So if you've fallen into sin today, then get up. Get up one more time, then you fall down. Get up and keep going. Paul says to kill it. Kill it for the sake of Christ. Now it's noteworthy that besides all the sexual sins, greed makes Paul's list. 
greed, this desire to have more and more, this ruthless pursuit of material things, just like all the people in the world that we live around. I mean, Paul says that's how you used to live. He's saying with Christ in your heart, you have a new focus. Now, that would be enough. We could have stopped there, but Paul isn't done. Look at verse 8. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, then not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. His first list had to do with impurity and with greed. Now Paul addresses the sins of our attitudes and how we talk. He's kind of really gone to meddling here, hasn't he? Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks, the Bible says. The idea of putting off the old self is this picture of taking off old filthy clothing. Maybe you've been out for a walk or out for a run or you've been to the gym and you come home all hot and sweaty and so you take those off. I've done some wood cutting and you come home covered with sweat and sawdust and not even aware that I smell like gasoline and oil. And Cindy doesn't even let me back in the house except for love. So she's going in the garage, take all those clothes off, don't even bring them in the house, throw them away. And then sneak into the bathroom and get clean. Put off the old self. Get rid of all these bad habits of anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. I don't think there's much difference between anger and wrath. Do you? I mean, you've heard of road rage, but have you heard of avenue anger? I mean, it doesn't quite come off the same way, even though it's probably the same thing. And, you know, we're looking at each of these. We could look at each of these words, but you know what they mean, and they are mean. And we're mean when we practice them. Even this one obscene talk from your mouth. When I see people come in with crutches or a bandage or something, what happened? And they tell you, and then I say, what did you say? And most times I go, oh, no, I'm not telling you. Now, Mike Brooks explained, you know, we're kind of like a sponge. And we have things in our heart that we think, I'm managing this, I'm fine. But when we get squeezed, like when a sponge gets squeezed, the water that's in it comes squirting out. And when we get squeezed, the things that are already in our heart come squirting out. What did you say when you were under pressure? It's interesting that lying is singled out. He says, don't lie to each other. Actually, the verb is in the present imperative, which with a negative means stop doing what you were doing. So he's really saying, stop lying. Stop lying. He says, lying seems to come naturally to all of us. And I was in a class full of pastors, and we were uh, talking uh, with Archibald Hart about, you know, exciting things like anger, burnout, depression, failure, and uh, disappointment. And he's waxing eloquent at the front, and then one of the pastors goes, oh, no, 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 and he gives an example of his own life that just sounds too rosy. And somebody on the other side of the classroom goes, he lied. <laughs> well, it set everybody free, because to be in a room, room full of pastors that are lying and uh, realize that... Sometimes it just comes naturally to all of us. Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life, John 14 tells us. And if Christ is in our heart, if we belong to Christ, then we need to be filled with the truth, and we need to speak the truth in love. And that doesn't come naturally. It's not our first language. It only comes by the Spirit of Christ. Then there's one more little verse. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. You know, from 30,000 when, when you just read this verse and you're flying over it, it looks like, well, that's pretty easy. If you're down on the ground, you would know that Greek and Jew are further apart than black and white in America. 
that the circumcised and uncircumcised didn't even talk to each other. The barbarians, Scythians, and slaves all wanted to be free. And here in this one little church, we know, because you can go read the little book of Philemon in the Bible. It's only one chapter. It's a little letter Paul is writing to a slave owner saying, this slave of yours ran away, and I'm sending him back to you. Don't kill him, which you could, even though he stole from you. He's your Christian brother. Paul is saying, in Christ... There is not the the dividing lines that you make in your world. It's all Christ. These barriers are real. I mean, race relations are in our news every day. And people discriminate, and they're discriminated against, and none of us has escaped getting some of this mud on us. And the problem is, it begins with how we think about ourselves and how we think about other people who are not like us. And pride gets in the way and blots out the thinking of Christ. And we, we make these differences out to be distinctions that divide us. And Paul is saying our common denominator is Jesus Christ. And he supersedes any of these divisions. So we don't follow the fences of the world. We follow Christ, who is all and in all. He is the great unifier. So our loyalty to Christ takes precedence over our color over our political party, over our station in life. We are one family in Jesus Christ. See, the big idea is your conversion to Christ changed everything. You're married now. You died to yourself. You came alive to Christ. You made commitments. So be like Christ. Keep him at the center. You know, we read Romans 7. The story doesn't end there. Because Romans 8, the same guy that said, I can't do the things I want to do, the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing, oh, wretched man that I am. Romans 8 begins and says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We are in Christ. That commitment lasts forever. This week we're talking about putting off. Next week Paul talks about what to put on, so you can read ahead if you want to. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for your love that you offer to place in our hearts. May we truly put you at the center of our hearts and our lives, and we thank you and we praise you for being our Lord and our Savior and our God. Amen.